Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, and I'm grateful to you for spending part of your valuable day with me to explore the connection between money and happiness. Now, if you're new to the program, that's what we do here. For the past 42 weeks, we've been talking to very interesting academics, journalists, authors, or everyday people with very interesting points of view on the topic of money. And we discuss how our relationship with money affects the decisions we make in our lives, in our careers, in our family lives, how we choose to chase the dreams we chase, and how we choose to allocate our money in ways that will help us become the best people that we can be. Happiness is one way to, to describe it. My guest today might call it enlightened self-interest. How do you pursue enlightened self-interest in the way that will help you live the most moral life possible? Specifically, we're going to talk about what is the developed world and each of us in the developed world's responsibility to those living in extreme poverty. My guest is Peter Singer. He is the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University and Laureate Professor at the University of Melbourne in Australia, whence he hails as you'll deduce in just a few minutes. The New Yorker magazine called Peter the world's most influential living philosopher, and Time magazine named him one of 2005's most influential 100 people. So the guy's made an impact. Peter's the founder of The Life You Can Save, an organization named after his book of the same name. It aims to spread his ideas about why we should be doing much more to improve the lives of people living in extreme poverty and how we can best do this. Bill and Melinda Gates called the book a persuasive and inspiring work that will change the way you think about philanthropy. The 10th anniversary edition of The Life You Can Save is available starting today. Today would be Tuesday, December 3rd, though you may be listening to this at a much later date. But the book is still available in both audio and ebook formats on the website, thelifeyoucansave.org. The audio version features readings from some very notable celebrities that Peter discusses. Peter has written extensively on the topics of bioethics, animal rights, extreme poverty, and effective altruism. His work has appeared in over 30 languages. His TED Talk on effective altruism has been viewed over 2 million times. I had the great pleasure of speaking with Peter in his office on a warm day this past September on the campus of Princeton University. And I mentioned that because early in the interview, you'll find out that his window was open because we can hear garbage trucks backing up. But it was a great opportunity to meet a very interesting and thoughtful man. I was honored to be able to chat with him. And by the way, in my discussions with Professor Singer, I play devil's advocate many times. So when I question his arguments, don't think I'm doing it because I'm a dick or anything. I just wanted to, you know, take the other side of the argument and, and you know, have like a cool intellectual discussion with one of the world's greatest thinkers on these topics. So please enjoy my conversation with Peter Singer. That is what the research shows. If you identify a particular child, people are more willing to help rather than if you just say there are thousands of children in need of help. So I think you're right. That is the way that we've evolved. We've evolved to help identifiable individuals because we've evolved living in small face-to-face societies where we could see all of the members of our tribe or, or group. We haven't changed since the world became larger and we started to have the capacity to help people far away who we can't identify. But again, that's a, an explanation of why we behave like this it's not a justification right. for behaving like that. And that's what I want to emphasize, you know, how we ought to behave rather than how we're likely to behave. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. 
Welcome to Crazy Money. Professor Peter Singer, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you. In 1971, you wrote an essay called Famine, Affluence, and Morality. Can you summarize the main argument you put forth in that essay? So I wrote Famine, Affluence, and Morality in the light of the crisis that was going on in what was then East Bengal and is now Bangladesh. And during that crisis, nine million people fled across the border from, sorry, it was East Pakistan. It was called not East Bengal, though it was part of East Bengal as well. So nine million people fled across the border into India. And India had great trouble, obviously, feeding and housing and providing sanitation for this vast mass of humanity escaping uh, repression from the Pakistani army. So they appealed for aid and some aid was forthcoming, but it was clear it wasn't really going to be nearly enough. I was then a, a graduate student in Oxford and I was thinking about what are our obligations in this situation? Here am I living comfortably in an affluent country. I have not only enough to live on, but I have enough to plan a holiday, going across the channel, touring Europe in the summer, things of that sort. Is that okay? Is that justifiable when there are people whose lives are in danger who I could be helping? So I started thinking about that and I argued that in fact we do have significant responsibilities to help people in great need where we can save lives or make a huge difference to their life at a relatively modest cost to ourselves. And I used a, a little analogy then which has since become famous. I asked the readers to imagine that they were passing a, a shallow pond in a park when they saw that a small toddler had fallen in. And although they look around and expect parents or babysitters or someone to be rushing in to help the child, there's actually nobody else that they can see. So they can save the child quite easily. There's no danger to them because they know the pond is shallow, but they will ruin their expensive clothes that they've put on for some special occasion today. And I say... Even so, wouldn't it be wrong not to save the child? Wouldn't it be wrong just to say, this child's not my responsibility. I didn't put the child in the pond. That would have been wrong, but I didn't do that. <laughs> and go and walk on. And so I say to the readers, if you agree that that would be wrong, then why isn't it wrong to also walk past more or less or turn your eyes away from those uh, people who are trying to raise money to help people in great need? And you extended this argument much further in the book, The Life You Can Save, Acting Now to End World Poverty, which you'll be reissuing. It was originally published in... It was published 10 years ago. This is going to be a 10th anniversary edition, so 2009 it came out. You take your argument much further and you pose questions uh, whether or not there are morally relevant differences between the drowning child and the child dying halfway across the world of avoidable poverty-related causes. As one who would want to... Uh, poke holes in your story, you poke them for yourself and then run the counter-argument there. That's what philosophers do, I think. We, we try to imagine objections, or sometimes you know, people have already made objections. Some of the ones I discuss in the book are, are ones that I didn't think up, but other people have made. Um, <laughs> and then we, we try to show how we would respond to them. Yeah, That's part of the, the business of philosophy, not just to state a position, but to think of arguments against that position and see whether you've got convincing counter-arguments to those. Those arguments might betray my, my own biases or heuristics of prioritizing, for example, that thing that is close to me as opposed to that thing that I cannot identify or is far away. Yes, that's certainly um, a, a big factor, I think, in why, in fact, people don't help those who are far away. 
There are really two things that you mentioned just in that sentence. One is that they're close to me, and the other is uh, rather than those I can't identify. Uh, and they're separate things because, of course, mm. you could have people who are far away who you can identify, especially with modern digital media. That's not a problem. So one question is, does the fact that people are close to me rather than far away make a difference? Another question is, does the fact that I can identify individuals make a difference? And I think both of those are significant psychological factors, but I don't really think that either of them are an ethical justification for not helping people who are both far away and whom you cannot identify as individuals. So in terms of near and far, I think many people will accept that it's sort of you know, pretty intuitively obvious that that doesn't in itself make a difference. It might be relevant to how well you can know if your gift has actually achieved what you want, but that will depend on the kind of supervision and the kind of team that there is over in the country where you're helping people, whether they can reliably provide you with good information about the difference that uh, your donation has made. The other question is the question of identifiable individuals. And as an example here, a program that is actually has been shown to be highly effective in saving the lives of, of children under five is the Against Malaria uh, Foundation's distribution of bed nets in areas where malaria is a big problem. But uh, one of the psychological obstacles to people giving to that program is that, of course, you can't identify who you've actually helped because it's not the case that every child sleeping under a bed net would have died without the bed net. If that were the case, then before there were bed nets, there wouldn't have been any people in that region. But we do know statistically that if you distribute a certain number of bed nets, it's likely that at least one child's life will be saved, but we never know which child. Mm -hmm. So you can never point to say, see, there's the child whose life I saved. And that's contrary, obviously, to some other conditions uh, where you can help a particular individual and where maybe you can identify that individual and you can feel more satisfied. And that is often the case also when people are close to you, that you can see the people that you're helping. So I think that's, a, again, a kind of a psychological tray that we have that has been shown by research to make a big difference in how likely people are to help. But everybody is really a distinct individual, whether you know their name, their face, their age. They are just as much a person, or in this case a child, who needs help and who will otherwise die and they will have real parents even if you don't know exactly which parents it is. I think we really ought to focus more on where we can do the most good rather than can we see the individuals whom we're helping, uh, you know, can they thank us in some way. I don't think that's what we should be focusing on. But we are programmed or have evolved to want to help individuals as opposed to some aggregate statistic, right? Where you mentioned a campaign where they used aggregate statistics, and I'm paraphrasing poorly, but bear with me, aggregate statistics to appeal to people to donate versus telling the story of one child that the donor could help. And the latter case was far more effective, presumably because one could put a face with the cause. That's right. Um, that is what the research shows. If you identify a particular child, people are more willing to help rather than if you just say there are thousands of children in need of help. So I think you're right. That is the way that we've evolved. We've evolved to help identifiable individuals because we've evolved living in small face-to-face -face societies where we could see all of the members of our tribe or, or group. And uh, we haven't changed since the world became larger and we started to have the capacity to help people far away who we can't identify. But again, that's a, an explanation of why we behave like this. 
it's not a justification right. for behaving like that. And that's what I want to emphasize, you know, how we ought to behave rather than how we're likely to behave. So all of our evolved and learned behaviors aren't necessarily the best behaviors we could demonstrate. No, because the world has changed. I mean, some of those behaviors are still well suited for the societies that we live in and are important to maintain. But some of them are not because the world has changed and where previously we couldn't make a difference to people far away whom we can't identify, now we can. And so that's at least one of those intuitions that I think we ought to say, yeah, you know, we understand why this evolved, why it was useful for millennia of human development, but it's not what we ought to be doing now. In, in that respect, it's a bit like our attitudes to greenhouse gases, right? Mm. Um, we don't have any evolved response to emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere because you know, we never knew that this was harmful until 50 years ago. But we ought to still be thinking that this is harmful and this is the wrong thing to do, even if we don't have that kind of evolved response. And my pushback as an individual to both greenhouse gases and helping starving or children with disease across the world is that it might be futile. I don't know. I might not have the evidence or be convinced that my help will actually make a difference. Well, I think you should be convinced that your help will make a difference, certainly in the case of helping people in extreme poverty. Because, mm -hmm. again, just take this one example of using uh, Against Malaria Fund to distribute bed nets. There's really good evidence that this does make a difference and that you're saving lives, you know, depending how much you're able to give. Let's say you're able to give $5,000 to them, then there's really good evidence that you'll have saved at least one life and possibly more through through that donation. If you're able to give only much less, then you're contributing with others to saving a life. So you can't say, I alone have saved mm -hmm. a life by giving $50. It costs more than that. The bed nets only cost $2, but to give enough out and to educate the families in using them, it'll cost more than $50 to save a life. But you're part of that process with others saving lives, so you are making a difference. And my resistance to taking responsibility here is, you know, I can say that it's either futile or it's not my responsibility or I'm giving in other ways. But your conclusion is that our current response to world poverty is not only insufficient, but morally indefensible. That's right. I think for people as affluent as we are in the United States and Australia, the country where I originally come from, and a number of other countries, to give as little as we do is completely indefensible. And in saying that, maybe I should say that uh, Americans often have a myth about how much their government gives. When, when you ask Americans in surveys, it's been done again and again, how much of the government's budget do you think goes on foreign aid? The answers range from, you know, they're usually in the range of between 10 and 20%. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they go even higher. I think the average is around 15%. Uh, the correct answer is about 1% of government spending goes for foreign aid. And in terms of as a percentage of our gross national income of everything that we earn as a country, it's less than a quarter of 1%. So it's really very little compared to, you know, compared to what we spend on a whole lot of things that are in no way necessary for us. Um, the amount we give on foreign aid is, is really pretty trivial. And what form does that aid take? Well, there's both government and non-government aid programs. Some of the government aid programs are quite uh, effective, I think. The uh, PEPFAR program that uh, George W. Bush started, I think one of the best things that he did in his presidency is to help uh, people who are HIV positive um, in developing countries to distribute 
the life-saving antiretrovirals to them and to help to prevent the spread of HIV AIDS. That has clearly been a success and has saved a large number of lives. There are other successful programs also uh, immunizing children against a range of diseases uh, that they die from, including measles, although there's now this anti-vax campaign against measles. But in fact, you know, the measles is a, is a big killer of children um, mm. in developing countries mostly, although now with the anti-vaxxers, we're starting to see more measles deaths in uh, affluent countries as well. Mm. What is the moral obligation of those who have money? Well, I think their moral obligation is to uh, use it wisely to do as much good as they can with it. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that's all of their money. I, I certainly don't criticize people who give substantial amounts but still maybe live you know, very comfortable or even quite luxurious life. But I think you should think about how much do you really need, what, can you, uh, what resources do you have that you can use altruistically and not just for yourself and those personally close to you. And then you should think about doing that as effectively as possible. So you shouldn't just be giving on an impulse because you saw some advertisement with a picture of a smiling child from mm. a developing country and you think, oh, that's a good cause. Uh, you should be looking at the uh, research which is out there now, which organizations like GiveWell and The Life You Can Save, both organizations you can find online, have about uh, which are the most effective organizations to give to, where you can do the most good. Then you should put those resources in that direction. I pay my taxes. I'm good to my family. I tithe. Am I living an ethical life? Uh, well, the tithing is certainly good. Um, you know, I, We hope everybody pays their taxes and are good to their family. I guess whether tithing is enough depends on how wealthy you are. I think uh, for some people in the community who don't have uh, a lot to spare, tithing is already a significant amount that they're giving. There already maybe some things that they might like to buy that they won't buy because they're putting aside 10% of their income for effective non-profit organizations. Mm. Um, so that's great. But if you're um, among the wealthier, then I don't think tithing is enough. Uh, at the back of the book, uh, The Life You Can Save, I have a kind of a, a chart suggesting uh, rising levels of giving corresponding with rising levels of income. As the income tax scale, for example, is progressive, mm. you pay a higher rate if you earn more. So I think people who are wealthy ought to be thinking about that for their giving as well. How much do I need to give? I need an answer, Professor. Uh, I'm need, sorry, I, but... <laughs> you, you, you got, I came here for answers. I'm in Princeton, New Jersey. You, this you, is home you, of the truth, is it not? It depends. What you, you're going to have to tell me what your income is. And, uh, <laughs> uh, on that basis, I can tell you. Or, you know, if you'd rather not doing that, I can tell you the various levels that, uh, that I have in that chart at the really higher levels. Um, they go up to a third of your income, mm. and then they start coming down progressively to you know twenty five percent, twenty percent, fifteen percent. But I'm certainly suggesting that it, people who are earning over roughly a hundred thousand dollars a year should be giving at least five percent. Mm. So that's less than a tithe. That's a half tithe, if mm -hmm. you like. And then when you get up above that uh, into the you know quarter of a million sort of range, you should be. Well, I think I think that the tithe cuts in with with my scale, if I remember rightly, around one hundred and fifty thousand, and then as you get up to the two hundred and fifty thousand, it gets up to fifteen or twenty percent and goes up from there. But I, I hope people will take a look at the book, The Life You Can Save. It, it's going to be available free uh, online, both as an ebook and as an audio book. And the audio book is read by a number of celebrities. You might be interested in listening to as well. Um, 
I think the audio book doesn't actually give all the figures because that's in the appendix, but the uh, digital ebook does give the figures. I'm sure there's a downloadable PDF that yeah, goes there with is, the audio book. Yes, that's true. That goes with the audio book. You're right. Yeah. So I made $100 last week doing comedy. What bracket do I fall into? If, if that's all you're living on, the $100, <laughs> uh, you're, you're off the hook altogether. Well, good. good. Um, Let's not talk about net worth. Let's just stay with, with income for now. <laughs> As I read your book, I started to think, and this is a horrible but perhaps natural response. As I'm reading this, and let's just say I do all this. Let's say I give away a third of my income. I was thinking to myself, what's the reward? Do I get into heaven? No, I don't think you get into heaven because I don't think anybody gets into heaven because I don't think there is any such place. Um, <laughs> then what do I do? Why do I well, live I this that, way? That's a pretty primitive concept. Even, it's absolutely even... primitive, and I acknowledge that. <laughs> yeah. and I, I apologize for my primitivity. That's, that's fine. Um, look, I rather think that the rewards are internal. The rewards are the sense of, of fulfillment that you can have from knowing that you've done a lot of good in the world, mm. that your life has been a positive thing, not only for you, but for others, um, that it hasn't just been that you know you've lived and uh, had some various pleasant experiences and then you've died, which in a sense is kind of meaningless. And mm. I think you know we like to have some sense of meaning, and even if we don't find that in any kind of religious conception, we can still have it in thinking it mattered that I lived, uh, and it mattered for the good that I lived. It made the lives of others better. It, it made the world in a, a limited way a better place because of the fact that I was here and the choices that I made. So tell me a little bit about enlightened self-interest. It seems to be a related concept. Yes, exactly. This is a kind of... So people will see giving as a sacrifice, but I think uh, that's a narrow sense of self-interest in which it's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice if you think of self-interest as, you know, how many toys can I buy? How many of the latest trendy things can I buy? Uh, can I have a really expensive watch on my wrist or drive a really expensive car or wear famous brand clothes or carry famous brand handbags and i think that that's a really misguided sense of self-interest and, and there's a good amount of research that shows this as well that when people spend on consumer goods it gives them a bit of a boost for uh, a short time but they adjust to it and, it and it fades away whereas when people help others that seems to be a more lasting kind of sense of satisfaction and as i say there is there is good research which not only shows the correlation between giving and um, being happier and more content with your life, and that's very well established, but some of the research shows the direction of causation as well, mm. and it shows that the direction of causation is from giving to being more satisfied with your life. And the degrees to which you believe we should be giving are far greater than the societal norms today. You say it may not be possible to consider ourselves to be living morally good lives unless we give a great deal more than most of us would think is realistic to expect human beings to give. You're pulling a little bit of the ancient mariner here on us, and you know the wedding guest is walking away a, a wiser but sadder man, right? Yes. So I think that it's true that you know we tend to think at the moment that just quite small amounts uh, are sufficient. I, I know that, you know, you suggest to people that they might give and they say, oh, I gave $50 or I gave $100 or whatever. And, and these are, are fairly wealthy people for whom mm. that's, that's really nothing and, and that makes no difference to the way they live. I think, I think we need to add some noughts to that. But the scale that I'm proposing isn't going to impoverish anybody. It's not really going to mean that people can't have good, comfortable, materially comfortable lives and provide for their children and loved ones. But it's rather that 
instead of thinking about some of those things that people spend on, particularly the the status goods, which I think are, are really crazy. And I was talking to somebody who had a friend who'd paid $40,000 for a, uh, one of these mechanical watches mm. and had to take it back to the dealer because it wasn't keeping time properly, right? Whereas, mm. you know, you can you can buy a, a $50 electronic watch that keeps time beautifully. So, you know, that kind of spending I think is really nuts and uh, people who are contemplating that should instead think about how much good that sort of money can do and really how much more meaningful it will be to them to know that they've helped other people than to be able to flash this expensive brand watch on their wrist. I may have a very expensive piece of machinery in my sock drawer at home that uh, I don't feel good about right now. So let's talk about how can we, you outline several causes in the book that really are, you can make a very large difference in a person's life in a few different ways. You mentioned malaria, which we've talked about a little bit. What about some of the other? So one obvious thing that people can easily relate to is uh, preventing blindness or restoring sight in people who are blind. So here's something that people in an affluent country can relate to, getting cataracts removed, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's pretty common as people get older, they develop cataracts, their vision becomes blurred. In some cases, they will become blind as a result of that. But that's got to cost thousands of dollars to remove a cataract. No, it, it doesn't. It costs, it costs less than $100, basically. Most wow. of the estimates um, vary a bit. You know, but Some say $25. I think actually that's a little bit low. But uh, yeah, I, I think it certainly can be done for less than $100. And when you think about that and how much difference it makes to someone to regain their sight, and not only does it make a difference to them, it makes a difference to others because if they are blind, they're often dependent on somebody else. They need, say, you know, somebody to, to help them through life and they can't themselves be as productive as they could. When you restore their sight, they become more productive and they don't need as much help. So it's a, it's a huge gain for a, a very modest amount of money. Fistulas. I hadn't heard of fistulas. Right. Most people haven't. So a fistula basically just is a kind of medical jargon for a hole. Mm. But the kind of fistulas we're talking about here, uh, known as obstetric fistulas, uh, come during childbirth, particularly when the woman giving birth is not really strong and healthy. Maybe she's a bit young for giving, giving birth to children, or maybe she's not very well nourished. And secondly, she's giving birth in a place where she cannot get medical help. And of course, that's a situation for many people in rural areas in developing countries. So what can happen then is that the birth becomes obstructed. Um, the baby can't get out and it's kicking and moving. And that goes on for many hours mm. and it wears a hole. The baby wears a hole in the uterus and that hole may go through to either the bladder or the bowels or both. So that means the woman, uh, assuming she survives this process uh, and the baby is eventually born, the woman is, is now incontinent. She's either incontinent of urine or of feces or both. And she can't really keep clean in the circumstances in which she's in, in a developing country where there's you know, not great sanitation. It's very difficult for her to keep clean and not to smell badly. So you know, her husband is likely to abandon her at, at that point. She may go back to her family, but her family can't really live with her either they may build a little hut at separate from their own place and oh, put her God. there um, so it's it's a young woman's life that is basically ruined for uh, you know many decades that she may still live with this condition now again this is a treatable condition there is surgery that can be done that in almost all cases can repair the the fistula the hole um, and she can go back to a normal life that's been estimated to cost around seven hundred dollars so it's more than restoring sight but again, it's, it's 
not a significant amount of money to many middle-class or affluent Americans or others. So it's, again, something that we can do that is truly life-transforming for a young woman at uh, relatively modest cost to ourselves. You profiled a doctor who did work, and so profiling him, again, I'm paraphrasing, doing a poor job of it, you raised the question of where the responsibilities to my own children, where do those become less significant than my responsibilities to an unidentified child halfway across the globe? Right. You're thinking about Paul Farmer, who um, was a Harvard medical graduate who went to work in Haiti because he saw the need among the rural poor in Haiti as being so much greater than back in Massachusetts. Mm. And then he developed this organization. He got some financial support called Partners in Health that um, is helping people uh, in other countries as well. And uh, he had a child himself and he would carry the picture of his child around in his wallet and then he realized that you know, there were these other children who he was helping whose lives he could save and he wasn't thinking about them and he, he felt that he should remind himself about them. So then he started carrying the picture of one of these children. In a way, he was using this idea of an identifiable child but he was using mm. that one identifiable mm. child as a kind of a token for all of the children that he could help. Uh, so he, he was you know, admittedly a fairly driven person um, uh, who always felt torn between wanting to spend time with his own child and his uh, wife and the knowledge that he could be doing good for other children. Mm. And it's very hard to say where to draw that line. I mean, personally, I obviously do give a lot more attention and care and concern to my own children uh, and now my grandchildren than I do to strangers, but I still try to make sure that I am not overdoing this, that I am thinking significantly about the well-being of others and both donating myself to help them as well as spending time talking about these issues, writing about these issues, mm. and trying to make more people aware of them. Looking a bit more broadly in the world, extreme poverty is declining while inequality is increasing both across the world and within countries. Is the world making moral progress? I do think the world is making moral progress um, because of the decline in extreme poverty and the decline, for example, in the number of children under five who die. UNICEF puts out figures of the number of children who die before their fifth birthday each year. When I published the first edition of The Life You Can Save 10 years ago, that figure was 9.7 million. Mm. Now in the new updated edition, it's 5.4 million. So it's almost halved. That's, wow. a, that's a big drop in just 10 years and it's definitely a sign that we are making progress. But there are reasons for concern about whether we'll continue to make progress at the mm. same pace. One of them, of course, is climate change. The fact that things are getting you know, less stable in the climate and that means that sorry, when you have rural people who are dependent on uh, rainfall to water their crops for them then to eat and survive, climate change can vary those rainfall patterns. It can also provide more scorching heat at periods when the crops are in the ground that might burn them off. So there are serious questions about whether we can continue to reduce the number of people in extreme poverty, continue to reduce the number of children and adults who are dying from poverty-related causes. I hope we can, but it's not going to be something we can take for granted that we will eliminate poverty. Mm. There are those that say that uh, global aid isn't effective. What are ways that we could be improving global aid to make it more effective? 
the claims that global aid is not effective are usually made with reference to government aid or aid from multilateral institutions like the World Bank. And it's true that some of this has not been effective. Mm. Some of this has given governments in low-income countries the opportunity to shirk their responsibilities. So there are problems about that. But when we're talking about aid from non-government organisations, then I think it's often a different story. Again, not always. Of course, not all of these organisations are doing a good job. But that's the point of having the, the research to assess which ones are. And that's why it's such a different situation now that we have organisations like GiveWell, who I think employ about 25 people full-time mm. doing this research, and they mm. have you know, no ties to any of the organizations they're assessing they're a completely independent organization uh, the life you can save is also promoting similar ideas and trying to get people aware of which are the most effective organizations to donate to so so it's easy now for people to go to uh, one of those websites and sort out which are the effective organizations from the less effective ones and and so i think we don't need to worry about this idea that, uh, quote, global aid is not effective. That's, mm. that's too sweeping, too broad a statement. And you know, unless you are planning to make your gift to the World Bank, which is probably not very <laughs> likely, um, then it's, the criticisms of those institutions and of government aids uh, is not really very relevant. What's relevant is, do we have the opportunities to give effectively, to make a real difference to the lives of people in great need? Uh, and the answer to that is unequivocally yes. Dear World Bank, please accept this donation. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, one of the challenges seems to me is that we as Westerners impose our way of thinking and think, oh, well, what they need is a school over there without really understanding the needs on the ground or, or whatever. And you talk about an organization that used media to help prevent disease in Africa, it just kind of opened my eyes to how little I knew about what was going on on the ground over there. Yes, uh, you're certainly right that we need to listen to people there rather than imposing our ideas on them. And good organizations do that. And they don't offer interventions that the people don't themselves want. Like we could send Gatorade and sweatshirts over there. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, in fact, sending all your used clothes arguably uh, depresses the industry in uh, developing countries where right. they can make their own clothing. Mm -hmm. So there are certainly issues that you need to think about of that. But um, you know, providing people with with bed nets, helping people to start small businesses um, wh where they want to do that in in villages, mm -hmm. an organisation called Village Enterprise that does that and provides them with some seed capital or goods, uh, trains them, mentors them in, in running a business, helps them to set up a savings group uh, so that there's sort of greater financial strength in the village. Those things work. Um, they've been shown to work and, and people want them. And you mentioned uh, Development Media International, DMI, which has shown that uh, radio advertising in the a number of countries, they started in Burkina Faso, one of the poorest countries of West Africa, actually saves lives, telling people about the kinds of health conditions that they or their children might mm. might experience and when do they need to get to a clinic and when they don't. Uh, I have testimony in the book from somebody who had a child who was sick and they didn't really know what was wrong with the child and they hadn't, I think maybe they you know, hadn't gone to any conventional medical clinic or anything like that to help. They tried some home remedies which mm -hmm. hadn't helped. 
And then they heard the radio uh, advertisement and they realised that the symptoms of the child were of malaria and they took the child to a clinic and she was treated with the appropriate drugs and she survived and they now call her the radio child because she wouldn't wow. have been there if they hadn't had a radio. And the parents thought she was under a curse. Uh, that's right. They did actually, yes. That was part of the traditional village belief. So, so the value of fundamental basic education is paramount in terms of helping them help themselves. It is. And, and I think in a way that's an example. You know, Some people will say, well, you know, everybody's culture has their own beliefs and they're all as good as others. But clearly <laughs> that sounds like it. Exactly. That's, it's not always the case. Um, and if people believe that a child who has malaria is, is under a curse and therefore they don't get the appropriate treatment for it, then that's not a, a belief that you want to preserve or you want to regard as equally valid. And of course, the parents themselves accept this once they see that she was close to dying because of the traditional remedies for a child who's under a curse. Um, and then they took her to get the drugs at the clinic and she quite soon became better again. Then they understand which are the, the more valid beliefs here. Mm. I'd like to ask you a little bit about your career. How does one decide to become a philosopher? Uh, you know, there's a lot of accidents in choices of careers and, and mine <laughs> is certainly no exception. Um, when I got to the stage where I was choosing uh, a university course to enroll for, I was planning to do law. Um, and in Australia, where I was at this time, uh, you do law as an undergraduate degree. You don't mm. have to do something other degree first. You know, I was interested in, in law, and I thought I would be a lawyer. Uh, my sister, um, <laughs> you're in two M and A laws. <laughs> <laughs> how different your career may have turned how out. How different it could have been. Yeah, well, who knows what sort of lawyer I might have been. You know, I like to think maybe I would have gone into sort of public interest law and yeah. helped people in poverty or refugees or something. You could be on TV right now. With, I can't uh, promise that. Huh? Been in an accident? Call <laughs> Peter Singer. <laughs> right. Yeah. Anyway, so my sister had this boyfriend who she later married, so he became my brother-in-law, um, who had done some philosophy. She's older than me. And I talked to him a bit about it and sounded interesting. So I thought I will do a, a bit of philosophy on the side, maybe as while going through the law degree. <laughs> philosophy um, is a side hustle. Yeah, well, because you could do you could do um, combined law arts degrees mm. you know, as well. But I got interested in it, and I finished the uh, the BA before I'd finished the law degree, and I was did well enough to get offered a scholarship to go on to do graduate research. Uh, that so was at Cambridge. No, no, this was in Australia. Oh, okay. Um, I, I, then subsequently, after I'd done uh, a master's degree, I then got offered another scholarship to Oxford. Oxford. Not Cambridge. Sorry, sorry. you've got to get the right one. Right. I'm sorry. Very important. I'm, for, I'm talking uh, to another graduates. Cambridge person later yeah, today. No, okay. That's the other place we refer to that. We prefer <laughs> not to mention the name. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. So, um, so that was basically one thing leading to another. You know, if I hadn't been offered this scholarship to do graduate work, I would have finished my law degree. And as you say... Who knows what kind of lawyer I would have become. Uh, and then if I hadn't got an offered the scholarship to Oxford, I still might have gone back and completed the law degree because that option was still open at that point. And by the time I went to Oxford and did a degree there and then got offered a job at Oxford where I taught for a couple of years, it was getting a bit late to go back to law by then. And right. Anyway, I was enjoying philosophy and I seemed to be doing well enough in it. You know, my father originally said when I was doing philosophy, he said, well, how can you make a living in philosophy, right? right. But I, by the time I'd finished my two-year teaching job at Oxford, I guess I felt I was doing well enough that I, I may be able to make a living in philosophy. And how did you pick a focus? In uh, that sort of was easy because I was always interested in areas of philosophy that had an impact on real life. So you know, there are a lot of interesting philosophical problems 
that have no impact. So how do I know that I'm not dreaming now, right? How mm. do I know that, that you're not somebody in my dream interviewing me or you know, a little more sophisticated because this is maybe a bit more vivid than a dream? How do I know there's not uh, somebody who's drugged me and put electrodes connected to my brain and mm. is programming me, uh, you know, this, this kind of situation? Well, you know, strictly speaking, I don't know that, right? It's very hard to prove that that is not the case. Um, and those, that's an ancient philosophical debate. But nobody really changes their way of living because they think, oh, maybe I'm lying in a vat with electrodes plugged into my brain. Uh, there's nothing that you can do about that. Whereas questions about how ought I to live, what should I be doing with my spare cash, is it okay to eat meat, what should I think about abortion or uh, what should I think about end-of-life decisions in, in medicine or... Uh, those sorts of questions obviously had an impact on real life. So from a pretty early stage in my uh, career, even as an undergraduate, I was focusing on ethics and political philosophy rather than on metaphysics or uh, epistemology or some of these other areas. And I'm gathering that you don't, uh, you don't measure your success by how big your paycheck is, but how do you measure your success and your happiness in your work? Uh, my happiness in my work comes, I guess, in two different ways. One of them is the intellectual interest of the work. I enjoy the process of understanding something that's complex and sorting out my own views on that and then uh, writing it down in a way that uh, expresses it. And if my colleague philosophers uh, feel that that's worthwhile and worth discussing, you know, that's also rewarding. But it's not, as I said, sufficient for me. I do want to have a broader impact. I think philosophy has something to contribute to the real world. I know through my teaching, uh, I've had a number of students whose lives have changed because of the issues that I've raised in class, um, issues about the sorts of things that we've been talking about with, uh, in terms of, of helping others and uh, also issues about concern for animals and uh, what we do to them in factory farms. So that's rewarding. And then if I can write books that have a larger impact or do interviews like this one, for example, that let's hope millions of people will listen to. Mil at least millions. Yes. Yeah. So um, if there are millions, then we can be pretty confident that some of them are going to respond to this in a positive way. And getting feedback about that and knowing that people are responding positively is immensely rewarding for me too. Let's talk a little bit about your organization, The Life You Can Save, and what you hope to accomplish by reissuing the book. So The Life You Can Save is an organization that spun off the first edition of this book that came out, as I said, in 2009. And at first, it was just a friend who said, uh, you should have a website associated with the book <laughs> um, so that people who don't read the book can read your views about why they ought to give and how mm -hmm. much they ought to give, and they can go online and pledge publicly to give. Uh, so the website was just doing that for uh, a year or two until I got a call from a guy called Charlie Bressler who told me that he'd had a successful career in uh, men's uh, retailing, mm -hmm. men's clothing mm -hmm. uh, retail industry. But that had never really coincided with his values. Um, he'd never sort of also, you know, slid into that backwards, had a PhD in psychology and had never really intended to go into business. But he'd made a reasonable amount of money, um, but he, he felt now as he was getting into his 60s that he, he actually wanted to do something that did fit his values more. So he got into heaven. That's what he was thinking about. <laughs> he was thinking about heaven. 
He's thinking about his enlightened self-interest, uh, no <laughs> doubt, but also, you know... Call it whatever you want in, to call it. Indirectly, of course, about, about helping others and feeling good uh, that, he's, that he's doing that. And he has actually told me as a joke, you know, because the book is called The Life You Can Save. He said, you know, well, the life you saved is, is my own because mm. he really feels right. that uh, this has been much more fulfilling. And so anyway, what he, what he called up to say was, do you want somebody to really build this up into an organization? Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, if so, I'm willing to do that purely as a volunteer. I don't want to be paid. And in fact, he's become a substantial donor to the organization. So I, I tell him he's on uh, a negative income, negative pay. Um, <laughs> Uh, but he's done that very successfully, I think. Uh, he's, he's built up the organization, uh, raised some funds for it, can now employ a small number of, of staff, doesn't have any offices. The staff work out of their own homes, but mm. you can work that way. And it's having a, a big impact uh, in terms of uh, for every dollar that uh, the organization spends, um, something like $13 gets donated to effective charities. That's donations that we can track through the website and through the organizations that uh, are receiving the money. Mm. So it's a way of giving that has a lot of leverage, really, that uh, you can give and you can multiply the amount you're giving. And uh, I think it's really important to try to spread this, this message, to try to get people to know that there are organizations that have been vetted for their effectiveness that you can give to with confidence and to get people to think more about exactly what we've been talking about. Mm. You know, here I am living in an affluent country, middle income or above, I provide for my family. What else should I be doing to be living an ethical life? Mm. Uh, and uh, one of those things is helping people who are much less fortunate than you are. Discussing the need to be on the same page as one's spouse when it comes to giving. So what is the process to agreement like in your own marriage? Well, there's two stages to it. If there's something that's small, uh, I'm talking about a couple of hundred dollars, then mm -hmm. it's fine. We don't have to discuss it uh, with each other. Uh, when we're talking about the big gifts that we do at the end of the year, and I'm talking about tens of thousands of dollars mm -hmm. now, we talk about that and we, we reach agreement on where those more substantial amounts are going. And it is basically either to the life you can save itself or rather more to the recommended charities of the life you can save. Uh, plus, I also give to some of the most effective organizations uh, trying to reduce the suffering of animals because mm -hmm. that's an issue I've been concerned about for a long time. And there is also an organization called Animal Charity Evaluators that tries to evaluate the effectiveness of animal charities. How did you come to an agreement on how much of your salary, which is a pretty big amount? If you care to put a percentage on it, I'd love to hear it. Uh, yeah, I don't mind uh, saying that. It varies a little bit with what our financial commitments have been as compared to how much we have available to give. But uh, certainly for the, uh, at least the last decade, we've been giving uh, at least a third of our income mm -hmm. each year. And uh, sometimes it's got pretty close to 50%. To mm -hmm. uh, we haven't actually passed the 50% uh, line as yet, but we're, we're working in that area. Do you give to any local or arts organizations? No. Um, <laughs> Does that make you persona non grata in your neighborhood? Ah, uh, no. I don't think uh, people really, you know, care about about that. There's nobody that's asking me to give to a particular local organization, or mm. if they do, they certainly understand when I say, uh, "Yeah, thanks," but I think my 
my money does more good when I give it to uh, one of these, you know, and then I name some of the other organizations that I'm giving to, whether it's Oxfam or Against Malaria mm. Fund or Developing Media International or Village Enterprise, uh, those organizations that we've talked about. I suppose with the arts issues, it's kind of interesting because, uh, and for that matter, you could add um, higher education, right? Well, that's what Here I, I am What about the Princeton Faculty right. Fund? Surely somebody's asking you for that. I used to do that. That was my job. Uh no, actually, faculty don't get asked to donate really? uh, money here. No, uh, certainly the uh, alumni do all mm-hmm. the time. There's mm-hmm. a very sophisticated development oh, office. Yeah. But you know, my students often ask me that. They say because they're already, you know, know that they're being lined up for donating. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they say, um, well, do you think I should donate to Princeton? And I have to say, look, Princeton has an endowment of something like $21 billion at the moment. Um, and uh, it's a great university and it's wonderful that it can give people uh, a good education, including, I should say, people who do not have the means to pay for Princeton. Over 50% of our students are on financial aid. Mm-hmm. So that's an excellent thing. But is it the best value you can get for your dollars? Uh, I really find that hard to say. Mm. And I have in the past had people from the development office uh, you know, to give them a chance to, to have their say on this issue if they want to um, about why giving to Princeton is good. And, and they're prepared to say, well, don't give only to Princeton. You know, There are other good organizations, but do give something to Princeton. That's a tough uh, 45 minutes for a development officer to come into your classroom and do that. I suppose it is, yeah. <laughs> So, Peter, people can find out more about all these organizations at thelifeyoucansave.org. They can also get the free download of the book there, correct? That is correct. And they can get uh, either an, an ebook to download or they can get the audiobook. And the audiobook uh, has chapters read by uh, a number of different celebrities. Who are we going to find there? Let's, let's tease with some hashtags here. Right. So, uh, biggest name for my generation, anyway, is Paul Simon of, of Simon and Garfunkel. Indeed. And he's been very helpful. He's certainly a philanthropist interested in helping people. We also have Kristen Bell, well known from Frozen and from the program uh, The Good Place. Uh, in fact, The Good Place was uh, director Mike Schur was very helpful. I contacted him because the program discusses ethical issues, and I noticed. One or two of my arguments got mentioned there. Oh, that's um, interesting. So he's written a foreword for the book, uh, which he reads. Uh, uh, he also got uh, Kristen Bell to read a chapter and uh, Mark Evan Jackson as well, who's somebody else who's on that program. That's awesome. Then we have Shabana Azmi, who is a very famous actress in India, and uh, the book will be released in India as well because there's a lot of a lot of uh, wealth in India as well as a lot of poverty, and we're trying to spread these ideas to India too. Um, Winnie Alma is uh, an African woman who has been working in the development area, um, and she's read a chapter. Uh, Natalia Vodianova is a very famous uh, Russian model. She's a reader. Stephen Fry is somebody who listeners to the BBC would know well, uh, has a beautiful voice and uh, has presented many programs and interviews on the BBC. So I think we have a, a very good selection of Got people a whole reading. host of uh, global celebrities to help you spread the That's word. That's right. Yep. Well, this has been a, a really terrific conversation. I appreciate your time and I thank you for your work. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much, Paul. Been good talking to you. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Peter Singer of Princeton University. By all means, go check out more about him and his organization at thelifeyoucansave.org. Get yourself a free copy of his book of the same name. By the way, if you enjoyed that conversation, I think you'll also enjoy conversations I had with University of Oxford's professor, Will McCaskill. 
one of the world experts in effective altruism. I spoke with him back in July. It would be episode 23 if you're looking for it in your podcast app. You might also enjoy another interview I did later that day, the same day I spoke with Professor Singer. I also spoke with Sir Angus Deaton, an economics professor at Princeton University, who co-authored a paper finding that no additional happiness accrued to people making more than $75,000 a year. And that was episode number 31 back in September. That was a pretty interesting one as well. Oh, by the way, if you do like these kinds of conversations, do me a favor, rate and review them on the app on which you're listening to this, and take a moment, share it with three friends who you believe would find it to be interesting. I really believe that in this time of strident, social media-driven political rhetoric, that conversations at greater length are really valuable and worth putting a lot of time and effort into creating and sharing. So there you have it. Thanks again to Professor Peter Singer for his time. Really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you to my producer, editor, Mike Carano. Mike, make me sound smart.